Please do open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, page 1473. We're going to read from verse 35. And I just want to read just a few. I want to read just a few verses of Mark 1:35, where we've just been witnessing Jesus healing a man, um, or delivering him actually, on, in the synagogue, a demonized man. And then what happens in the village is that everybody clamors around Jesus, and he begins to heal and and deal with people's. Um, the, spiritual oppression in an extraordinary way. There's really a succession of miracles that happens on the, that comes with his teaching. He's teaching the word of God and that the power of God is at work through Christ. And so there's obviously an incredible buzz going through the town. And you can imagine uh, when people, when there's a, the excitement of the presence of somebody ex- as extraordinary as Jesus, that's what's happening. And uh, they go to bed and then this is what happens the next morning. Verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who are with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, Casting out demons. I want, to, I want to speak to you about the devotional life of Jesus today, his prayer life. Um, because obviously as a Christian, we're, we're really conscious that prayer is utterly essential to our spiritual well-being. And uh, it's really hard to imagine the Christian life in any meaningful sense without prayer. You consider the prayerless Christian. The prayerless Christian is somebody who um, is devoid of a meaningful relationship with the living God. We've been singing about God as our Father and the goodness of experiencing His Father, fatherly relationship to us. And uh, as I was thinking in that worship time, I just had a, a very strong sense that for some of you that is exactly the problem that you're facing in your Christian life, your day-to-day life, that you... You believe, perhaps, at a very cold and intellectual surface level of the, the reality of the things that we sing and that we profess about the Christian faith. But it's as though you've never experienced the relationship aspect of knowing God. And it hasn't begun to touch you in the deepest parts of you. It hasn't begun to resonate in your gut. And you, you don't know what it means to walk with Him on a day-to-day basis. And I, I really feel that as much as the things we're going to be thinking about today are going to be just very practical, I believe that God would want to inspire and call you to the right kinds of commitments and decisions that would enable you to start again, I suppose. A prayerless Christian is in a really sickly state because the heart of the Christian faith is not do this, do that. It is believe on God and depend on Him. And there is no way that we more, we better express our dependence upon God on a day-to-day basis than through prayer. Prayerlessness is independence from God. It's saying that I will deal with my problems myself. Prayerfulness is an expression of faith because it's the pouring out to God of your need, of your hope, of your desire. 
and trusting that he has all things in his hands. So the heart of the Christian faith, which is a life of faith, a life of trust, a life of dependence, is expressed through daily prayer, frequent prayer. And therefore, a prayerless Christian is in a sickly place. And it may be the case that you, you immediately identify yourself and say, I'm a, I'm a person who doesn't pray. I don't know how to pray. And my prayer life is really, really deficient. The flip side to that, of course, is that somebody who is prayerful and uh, experiences and walks in the daily disciplines and habits and the joy of prayer is, can be a force to be reckoned with. All of my um, reading and understanding of, through Scripture and in church history is that the great men and women of God who have, who have really changed the world are people who have been, first, first of all, face-to-face with God in prayer. And in so doing, they begin to grasp who He is, His heart. They, they find that their whole life is realigned to His priorities and there's potency that comes out of that. It was said by Mary, the Queen of Scots, that the one thing she feared about John Knox, the reformer, was his prayer life. And uh, you can understand why. The man was a thunderous man, but he, he gained his conviction and power in his relationship with God. Friends, I want to exhort you today to be thinking about this. People who pray develop humility. They grow in holiness. And it may be the case that you've been experiencing a life uh, that is suffering the effects of prayerlessness. And you can think that your, your life will accumulate a number of symptoms when you, when you don't pray. When my wife and I first got married, um, I didn't have a driving license to my embarrassment, so I had to be chauffeured. And um, we, we borrowed my in-law's car a little uh, Volkswagen Polo, um, which was their, their sort of second car, their little, just a re- little beat-up runaround. And uh, we were going to drive down to Dorset for our honeymoon, which is, you know, it's in the hundreds of miles away. So um, we, we got into the car, and we did the journey on the motorway. And when we arrived, um, I just happened to glance down at the, the front offside tire and discovered that the thing was so worn that the wire which holds the rubber together, was exposed and is poking out of the tire. And, you know, at that point, I didn't know if this was some kind of plot to take us out or what my in-laws were thinking and letting us drive this thing. But it could easily have suffered a blowout on the way down, you know, where you, you're driving down the motorway and then a tire explodes. And it's one of the most dangerous things that can happen because you instantly lose control of a car. And uh, that could have been the end of our short married life if we... <laughs> If that had happened. Um, but in some ways, some people, they go about their Christian life on the very edge like that, just about to suffer a blowout because of the fact that they, they don't have a, a relationship, a meaningful relationship with God. And the, the kind of symptoms that, that, that will reveal themselves in your life are things like a, a fretfulness, a constant sense of being frayed around the edges, a sense that you are... Um, that life is, is, is fragmenting or that you feel totally harassed in your day-to-day life, um, that you feel distant from God, that there's a coldness when you gather with God's people and no desire to be in God's presence on a day-to-day 
basis, that you don't have any sense of clear purpose about why God put you here and what you're here to do for God. All these things are kind of the symptoms that come from a life that's lived away from God and without dependence in prayer upon him. And I think all of us go through seasons where we recognize these things in our lives. So it's not, I would imagine that every one of you understands exactly what I'm talking about. But the dangerous thing is when that becomes the chronic situation, it's the ongoing situation of your Christian life. What I want us to do is think about Jesus. Think of his example. The mere fact that Jesus committed himself to prayer is interesting in and of itself. Here's how one commentator put it. He said, one of the reasons Jesus did this was because he wants us to live our lives on the same basis. He's showing us how to live a Christian life. He said, if Jesus prayed in order to live a godly life full of power, so must we. This is an overpowering argument. Jesus is the eternal God incarnate, the creator of all, who holds everything together by his power, yet he still lived by and in prayer. That impresses me, that argument. I want us to think about the way and why and how Jesus went about prayer and uh, learn from him. We want to learn from him in a couple of ways. We want to learn from him just at purely the practical level because there's a sense in which we just have to aim to walk in his steps. That's what imitation is. That's what being a disciple means, actually, is I'm going to copy you. But it's not enough that you just imitate him. It's more important that you go beneath his practical decisions to begin to understand the reasons why. And that's how we're going to consider what he's doing here. We want to understand the purpose, the rationale, the things that motivate his practical decisions. Because I think, here's my central argument, that the decisions Jesus made at a practical level about how he went about his life of prayer reflect his core um, orientation that he he wanted to put God first in his life, to love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that desire gave birth to particular ways of going about his devotional life. That's what I want to put to you. And I'm going to show you five things that come out from these verses about the way he prayed. Here's my first. He got up early. And rising, it says, very early in the morning while it was still dark. And you already feel sick, don't you? <laughs> Why does it matter that he got up early? I think it matters in this way. Remember, I'm trying to make the case that he wants to put God first. I think he here, he's putting God first in terms of his time. And I understand it like this, that if you think about time as a resource... What does it mean to have your time consecrated to God, given over to God? And you can think about it, think of the analogy of how we understand giving and the importance of giving in the Christian life. In the Christian life, we understand that everything we have is a gift to us from God, every possession, every pound. It's all God's. But we're called then to take a portion, and the biblical call to give a particularly a tenth, which is the pattern that we often see in the Bible is a call to take the first portion of what God has given you and then return it back to him as a gift. Not because you're saying, not because you're saying, this tenth belongs to you, God, but because rather you're saying, everything I have belongs to you, and therefore I'm giving you the first fruits, the first portion. And that's how biblical giving worked. If somebody went into their, 
their field and harvested the corn, or they plucked their grapes, or whatever it is they did, or they slaughtered their lambs in season, the first, the first fruit, the first portion would go to God so that they could say symbolically, everything I have belongs to you, God. And I think it works a little bit like that with your time. Part of the reason, the rationale why early prayer is important is because you're saying, God, all of my time belongs to you. Every minute of my day is yours. My whole life and existence is to be lived in order to serve you. Therefore, I need to remember that by giving you the first portion of the day. I turn to you first. In that way, you're offering your whole life as a kind of as a sacrifice or as a consecration to God. Now, early prayer is something that you, is it something that you see in various places in the Bible. I think about somewhere like um, Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the whole Bible. But he says this in one verse, verse 147. He says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. I rise before dawn and cry for help. The first thought on his mind is to get up early and turn to God before he can turn to anything else. In Psalm 5, um, prayer and the morning sacrifice, which was part of the temple rituals, are joined together. He says in Psalm 5, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Before anything else has happened, he's saying, I devote myself to you with sacrifice and with prayer. I want you to understand then that this is how we understand our time. You think about the Christian practice of worshipping on a Sunday. In the Hebrew way of speaking, the first part of time is, is often described as the head. So the first month of the year is the head of the year. The first day of the week is the head of the week. And the reason why I think, part of the reason why we worship on a Sunday is because it's saying the entire week belongs to you. We give ourselves to you at the start of this new week, Sunday being the first day of the week, and the Sunday morning service being the superior service on a Sunday. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> so we give ourselves to God first thing in the morning. Now, I want to say this with an element of caution. As confession as well, I'm not a morning person. When I try and get up early for any length of time, it's not long before I start falling apart. Like my body, I get sick. I, you know, all these excuses, I know. But um, I, I'm not a morning person. But th- there's a slight danger here if we overemphasize early morning. And the danger is, I see this not just in Christian literature, but also in the way a lot of secular people talk about managing your time and productivity and that kind of thing. There's a lot of people who advocate now for particular morning routines and rituals. I think about guys like Tim Ferriss or other sort of life coaches and that kind of thing. And they say, this is how I live my day. In the morning, I have to do these five or these 18 things. Sometimes the lists are enormous. And it's like, I have to make the coffee in this way. And then I have to like, meditate for this amount of time. And then I have to do this. And they say, if any one of these parts is removed, my whole day falls apart. And, um, and, and Christians also approach it that way. They say, unless... Unless I pray in the morning, first thing, then my whole day is just rubbish. And I hear that commonly. And I think that's quite an unhelpful way to approach the whole thing. Because it really, um, it re- in some ways, it undermines the fact that this is a relationship with God. And uh, it also becomes self-fulfilling. You know, you wake up late one day. And, um, and then it's just like, well, the day is doomed from this point on. <laughs> like, there's just no hope for me. And it's unhelpful if you slip into that legalistic way of thinking, isn't it? But... 
And also, the fact is that in the Bible, people didn't just pray in the morning. They prayed at other times. You think about a man like, uh, well, Isaac. When Isaac, uh, they sent off the servant to go and find him a wife from among his relatives in the other, other end of the Middle East, he, the servant comes back with Rebekah. Remember the story in Genesis. And as Rebekah is coming, riding on the camel with the servant, Isaac is found in the field in the evening meditating. He's communing with God in the field as the sun goes down. And I don't think that there's any particular set pattern for how you have, what time of day you have to devote yourself to God. I think there is a merit to early morning. But we also have to recognize that the whole of our time is God, and we can pray at any time. Daniel's pattern was to pray three times a day. He'd pray morning, midday, and evening. And he'd, he'd follow that routinely every day, despite being a very, very prominent civil servant in the Babylonian and then Persian empires. So you think, well, that, this man really knew how to put God first in his day. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, you discover Peter um, praying at midday, which is when he has the great vision of the sheep descending from heaven with all these different foods that were unclean, and God saying, kill and eat, and so breaking down the division between Jew and Gentile. But the crucial thing there is that Peter, maybe he missed his morning quiet time, I don't know, but he's there at lunchtime praying instead. And I think that's encouraging. It's not the only way, but this is Christ's way. This was his normal pattern, actually. He rose early in the morning. And there's a provocation in that. How do you give your time to God? Even if you don't do it that way, how do you do it? How do you make sure that God has the portion of your time that, that symbolizes that all of it belongs to him? That's the question you've got to wrestle with and decide for yourself. Understanding that God loves you no matter whether you get up early or not. Understanding that that um, you can turn to him at any time. So that's the first thing, he got up early. Here's the second. He got away from distractions. It says that he rose early in the morning while it was still dark, and he departed. He departed. They were probably all staying in the same home, him and his, his disciples, and Jesus left the house. He departed. What does this signify for us? I think it signifies his desire and intention to offer God, his Father, his full focus and attention. Not just his time, but his focus and attention. Now this, I think, is probably the most important point of all, practically, for us in our day and age. Because the obvious reasons that we, we have constant invasions into our mind and our attention, don't we? I mean, it's... it's, it's so many of you, I suppose, probably many of us, I should say, sleep with our phones next to our bed. And the first thing you do in the morning when you turn off the alarm on your phone is you unlock it and, and you see your notifications or you, you swipe through social media or whatever it is you do or you check your emails. And the, the constant invasion, doesn't just, not just in the morning, that's, that's just how you start the day. It continues like that, doesn't it? The beeping and the kind of the lit-up screen, and all the rest of it. And it's not just social media. It's, there's all kinds of things that, that come in all the time to distract us and to steal our focus, steal our sense of peace, steal our attention. Now, attention is a resource, isn't it? A precious one, just like time is. It's becoming increasingly um, common to hear people talk about the importance of, of what you do with your attention. Uh, one of my favorite books that I think came out last year was by a guy called Cal Newport. 
who wrote the book Deep Work. And um, he's not a Christian. He's writing from the perspective of, of, um, of how to, to do better at your work. And he says, a lot of people are going through life constantly distracted. And therefore, their work is of a low quality. So one of the ways that you can differentiate yourself is by learning how to shut out various distractions in the world and, and be fully, fully focused on the thing in front of you. And he has a, a lot of advice for that. And then there's books like um, Mihai Chik Sent Mihai's book called Flow, which has been very popular. He was a psychologist. He did a number of experiments on what made people feel fulfilled in their work. And he said a lot of people feel fulfilled when they reach a state of flow. Which is another way of putting it is just saying you get lost in your work. There's enough challenge to keep you interested, but it's not so hard that you, you keep, you keep um, hitting a wall and, and stopping and looking for distractions. And he said that's how you feel enjoyment, just in your work. And there's a lot of people who have made much of this point. Now, uh, that's all interesting and that's all helpful. But it's obvious that people are, are wrestling with the issue. Well, how do we live a fulfilled, how do we experience the sweetness of of, of of having our, our attention captivated by something important. And for a Christian, this is never more important than you find that in prayer. You find that before God. You know, it's not uncommon for us as Christians to sit down or kneel down or stand or walk to pray and you get a few words in and then a thought pops into your mind. And then you're up and off and you're just checking something on the computer or you're writing something down and then then you, get, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to pray now, I'm going to pray now. You, get, you start praying again, and then it's like your mind's wandered. No, you catch yourself five minutes later thinking about something entirely different. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Christ, listen, this was, this, I'm trying to help you to see the practical decisions Jesus made that were undergirded by the desire to put God first. And the practical decision he made was to get away from distractions. And the way he did it was he created a physical barrier between the distractions and himself. He also commended this, by the way, when he taught on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where we hear the Lord's Prayer, and and he's teaching them how to pray. And he offers them some practical advice before he tells them how to pray. He says, go into your room and close the door. Simple, but oh, so vital. And it seems to me, by the way, that Closing the door with all your devices in front of you is, doesn't count. <laughs> it seems to me that we, we must give our focus and attention to this because prayer, prayer is not rich and sweet when you have these constant invasions into your mind and heart. It isn't giving God our best, is it? So he got up early. He got away from distractions. And then a related idea. Here's my third point. He got away from demands also. This is slightly different. And I think it signifies a desire to have his entire agenda and mission controlled by God, controlled by the Father. Think about the context of what was happening here. Before they'd gone to bed the night before, the whole day had been occupied by the demands of people. Verse 34, it says, He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit that the demons would speak because they knew him. In fact, it said a bit earlier in verse 33 that the whole city was gathered at the door. You can, you can picture it. It literally is like faces inwards, crowds leaning in, demands on Jesus. He goes to bed, somehow manages to have a night's sleep. And the first thing he does is he gets away from all of those demands. 
I find this really interesting. Look what happens when, after he's, found, he's, he's put himself in an isolated place, away from them, when he's departed and gone out, it says. Verse 36 tells us that Simon uh, and those, it says, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. So despite his, his very conscious effort to get away from demands, the disciples go looking for him. And it says then that Simon says to him, it says they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. But here's the interesting thing. The demands keep coming, but at this point when Simon finds Jesus, it's too late. What I mean is that Jesus by that point has already prayed. He's already gone to the Father. He's already rediscovered and knows the Father's will for him for that day. So that as the demands begin to creep into this new day, as the sun's coming up and people are waking up and the disciples finally crawl out of bed and they go finding him, as the demands creep into his day, it's too late. Jesus has already settled things in his heart and with the Father about what he's going to do with his time and what it means for him to live on mission and to offer his time and agenda to God. Now here's the danger that I'm trying to point out to you. I think one of the most unfulfilling ways that you can go about your life, if you want to serve Christ in your day-to-day, the most unfulfilling ways is to be, number one, is to be reactive instead of active. What I mean by that is that basically the, entire of, the entirety of your time and your gifts and all that you offer can be a response to other people's agendas and, t- and demands. And often it can be low-level things, just maybe relatively unimportant things, but the constant interruption and the demands on you. And it can control how you go about living your life. And this isn't a small thing. I'm not just talking about what happens on the day-to-day basis, because you think about it, this becomes a habit of life, which then you span out across the decades that you hope to live. It becomes the entire pattern of your life, the direction of your life, the mission of your life. So to be reactive rather than active is to, is to have your whole, your whole way of life determined by other people's needs and demands or, or agenda for you and not God's. And so related to it is this problem of mission drift. You know, I, think, I would hope that all of you have in your, in your heart, you've settled it in your heart to some degree what you're here for, whether wrestling in prayer, knowing Knowing why God's got you on this earth. And some of it is just the very plain stuff of Scripture. It tells us the calling on each of us as a disciple. But some of it's unique to you. The coming together of, of your sense of call because of your affinity, the things you love, your ability, the things you're good at, and opportunity, the doors that open for you. And you kind of know what your mission is in life. And if you don't, you're seeking God about that. But how easily that focus and clarity about what your mission is in life can drift the more that your life becomes crowded with the demands of other people. So when Jesus, when Jesus is found here, it's too late. He's been with God, and he knows what the Father's will is for him. It reminded me of that verse in John 5, where it says, uh, where Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. Jesus is articulating for us there his basic principle 
for doing what he did with his time and gifts and resources. He says, I only do what the Father does. I only do what the Father has called me to do. And it ought to be the desire of every Christian to be more and more conformed to that pattern, right? Negatively, it means that Jesus had to block out good things that he could have done, but that would have distracted him. And the good things there was that Simon's telling him, look, everyone's looking for you. In other words, there's more people that you can come and heal. There's more stuff you can do in this town. It's not done yet. And Jesus has to say no to very, very good things that he could have done so that he can embrace the next stuff, which is he's called to. What does he tell Simon? He says, verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went, it said, throughout all Galilee. And I, I, don't, I think that, to me, it's, it's absolutely obvious. That clarity of mind, that absolute focus and purpose that Christ has in that moment is because he's taken the, the opportunity to be with the Father in prayer. And to some degree, every Christian should have that, that peace and settled determination that comes from knowing I've been with God, I know what I'm here for. I'm invulnerable to many demands because I'm going to do God's will. Here's the fourth thing. He went somewhere desolate. It says, he'd risen while it was dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place. Now, what does this tell us about his heart and mind and mentality as he's praying? What is, he, what is the reasoning for this? And I think it's something like this. That Jesus, when he prayed, he wanted to offer his best to God. What I mean is that I think the call of every person is that you need to know yourself in order to give your best to God. Part of that is knowing, knowing yourself even in prayer. And there's two ways you can think about that, sort of both negatively and positively. That negatively, Jesus knew what would hinder his prayers to God. He knew what prevented good, deep, quality prayer. But he also knew what would bring about and elicit the best kinds of prayer, the most intimacy, the most fervor, the ability to hear the Father's voice. And for Jesus, that meant a decision, a determination to find solitude, total solitude. This isn't just a one-off, by the way. I mean, we know already from earlier in Mark 1 that this is how uh, he was driven into the wilderness. But also, uh, Luke's gospel, he tells us about the same thing. Where Luke just says this comment. He says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So this isn't a one-off. Luke's telling us this was Jesus' pattern. This is how he went about his prayer life. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You've got to realize that this is Jesus' conscious deliberate, habitual pattern. He knows how he prays best, and it's to find total isolation, total solitude in his case. And so I want to provoke you to think, do you, do you know yourself when it comes to prayer? Because we're all different, aren't we? We're wired differently, and we have different... Not everybody prays like Jesus prays. We pray differently because we're all uniquely constructed 
You ask yourself, again, negatively, do you know what hinders your prayer life? What, and have you made decisions and conscious decisions to remove those problems? And do you know what helps you? When, are you? when do you have the best times of prayer? Have you made conscious decisions then to pursue that way of praying, to make that your habit in day-to-day life? Do you know yourself? Because a lot of people just complain. You know, I can't pray. I don't feel intimacy. I don't grow in prayer. But they've never taken the trouble really to consider and intelligently consider when, where, how do I experience the most richness and sweetness in my day-to-day, in my daily prayer. And it's, it's a little bit silly, isn't it? That we make the same mistakes day after day when we could intelligently think about this as Christ does and find ways that will help us pray. Here's the last thing I want to say. He actually prayed. All the rest has been preamble, okay? Rising early, while it was still dark, departed, went out to a desolate place, and it says, and there he prayed. He put God first by actually engaging in and offering himself to God in prayer. Now, I say this because I think you can get everything right. You can make a decision the night before and set your alarm. You can set even a place in the house a chair or somewhere where you're going to go and pray. You can, you can get everything right and prep for prayer and then actually when it comes to it, not pray. Or not pray for long or not pray effectively or not pray with any sense of intimacy with God. And you ask yourself, why? You made all the right decisions except when it actually came to it. And it seems to me, and this is certainly true of my experience, that there are both internal and external forces. The internal ones are that there's still, there's still the problem of your own heart and mind. There's unbelief. There's uncertainty about how to pray. There are the anxieties of the day. I think this is a huge one when you know, you know what needs to be done. So it doesn't matter how early you get up, you still think, I need to start now. There are the distractions, which I mentioned earlier, particularly distracting thoughts. There are also external forces. And what I mean by that is that we must not, as Christians, underestimate the reality that in prayer, we are, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. And to ignore that is to make yourself vulnerable to being swept along with emotions and thoughts and, and not understanding that it's your job to, to guard this, this time, to guard this opportunity to pray and then to actually pray. I want to offer then a few bits of advice as we close. Practical thoughts on this. Three things that can help you once you've made all the right decisions and you've found yourself in a place where you're going to pray, actually then pray and pray well. Three thoughts. Here's the first. It can help if you have a method to pray. Matthew Henry was one of the greatest um, Bible teachers who ever lived in the 1600s and he wrote, he wrote a commentary that spans the entire scriptures. But he also wrote a little book, or put together a little book, called Matthew Henry's Method for Prayer. And what it is, basically, is a collection of scriptures turned into prayer, so that you can use scripture as a tool to pray. And it's just one method. But it underlines for us the fact that 
people who've been serious about prayer have always wanted to find a way that helps them pray, a kind of a structure to their prayers, something that enables them. I don't think this is true of everyone. I think some people's personality doesn't need this. But some people do need it. And there's all kinds of ways and methods that you can incorporate into your daily prayer to give you a kind of a lattice upon which your prayers can grow, if you want to think of it like that, or a trellis. And think about things like our community Bible reading. That is basically a way of reading scripture and then turning it into prayer because we follow the Acts model, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And as you go through a verse or a few verses at a time, you, f- you find ways to turn that into either adoration or confession, thanksgiving or supplication. So the structure is there for you. And it makes prayer much easier. And also makes Bible reading easier because you're constantly filtering everything through this lens. You think about how, I mean, some people use a book, books to aid them in prayer, like the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers from the 1600s. And they're rich with theology and God-glorifying sentences and phrases that you and I would never think of if it was just left to us to pray. And somehow it can lift us in prayer. I know one friend of mine says, like, what he does is he sits down and opens it, and he, reads, he, he starts to read one of these prayers. And he says, by about halfway through and towards the end of it, he suddenly finds his heart's coming alive. And then he's free to pray how he wants to pray, having used that as his prop, his method to get into prayer. And I think there's all kinds of ways that you can establish a method for prayer. One of the most helpful ways is to pray with someone else. You may discover that you find it easier to establish a habit of personal prayer if once or twice a week you consciously have an appointment to meet with somebody else to pray together. And you share certain concerns. And I found the easiest way to pray with someone else is to keep your prayers short, just to, you know, 30 seconds each and just alternate constantly and to keep moving forward in prayer and concerns and, and listen and echo what each other are praying for and then before long, half an hour, 40 minutes can pass and you think, where did the time go? But your heart is stirred by praying with another person who loves Jesus. There's all kinds of ways you can bring a method to prayer. And the point is, don't just approach this blindly and mindlessly. Think about it. Make decisions in advance. How am I going to approach this? So that when you sit there in your chair or you get down on your knees or you stand before God, you're not just blank. You've, you've, you've established a pattern that tips you into prayer. So that would be my first point of, and my first advice. The second is this. Find a way to be honest with God. And this is really the complement to what I've just said. Because the, the great danger of having a method is that you run through a routine in prayer which becomes very cold and flat. And the real heart and purpose of prayer is that you find a way to express your deepest, rawest, most, um, most honest way of speaking to God. It seems to me that that is what the Bible commends in prayer. The Psalms are full of the, the most raw language, aren't they? Language of the heart. Language of desperation or of need or of delight. Now think about times when you're getting to know a new friend. It's my experience sometimes when, for example, we have some new friends around for dinner, you might have a, a small group of people or just another one or two people. And a lot of the conversation is, is wonderful, and, but surface level for a while. 
And there comes a certain point, isn't there, in, when you're spending time with somebody over an extended period of time, or maybe like a long evening, there comes a point where suddenly the conversation tips. And you go from a kind of fairly superficial conversation into something deeper. And the heart, hearts are opened up. Sometimes it doesn't happen on the first evening. It's when you've been together multiple evenings or days together. But there's some point at which, when you spend extended periods of time with someone, the conversation tips into something real. It's not to negate all that went before, but you kind of plumb into a new level. And I think this is the aim for the Christian life in prayer. This is when prayer really begins to be sweet and to reap dividends in your, in your life and change your heart. Is when you've gone from your method for prayer, and somehow you've moved past that into, into deep and honest and real engagement with God. And it's not that what went before was an unimportant, but that this is kind of where you need to get to and to have this relationship with the Father on a daily basis. And how challenging it is to get there if you're just rushing all the time. You know, if you've only got a few minutes and you're you know, you've only allotted a small amount, how much we need to press in to experience the deepness and sweetness of relationship with God. I want to encourage you to try and get there. And here's my last encouragement on, on practically, the fact that he actually prayed is this. You need to remember that you can only come to God in prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus. And we know that he has a sweet, deep intimacy with his Father. We know it. His whole agenda, time, mission, everything about his life is controlled by this relationship with the Father. Because he has an unhindered and unbroken fellowship with God. No sin to confess. No temptation to walk or run away. No inability to hear the Father's voice. He has a face-to-face relationship with God, the same relationship he's enjoyed for all eternity. And the great question you must ask yourself is, well, how can, I, how can I know God like that? And friends, this is why the gospel is so important to our prayer lives. Because the great hindrance that would stop you from relating to God in a personal and intimate way is a sense that you might feel of accusation or condemnation or separation from God on account of sin. A lot of people don't enjoy prayer because they never get past that. The Bible tells us in numerous places that when we come to God, we can come with the confidence of being children. In fact, we come as though we are Jesus in the Father's presence. We are as acceptable as Christ himself when we come to God in prayer. And the great practical challenge that you have to learn in order to make this real, make this really touch, you know, the rubber hit the road in terms of your daily experience of walking with God, is that you've got to be able to take what you know up here as theory and make it feel real in your own heart when you're coming to God in prayer. Because you know the gospel. But the, the problem is, emotionally, it doesn't always sink into you. And you don't feel like you can pray. 
One of the greatest pieces of advice I ever heard on this was um, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons in his series called Spiritual Depression. And it became a book. And he was trying to dig into some of the reasons why people don't grow in their relationship with God or don't experience joy in their relationship with God. And in one of those sermons, he was tackling the psalm where the psalmist asked himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. And he's, he starts to dissect what's going on in the mind of this, this believer who's writing this psalm. And this is Lloyd-Jones' advice. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. He says it like this. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. I think this is one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever heard, and I think it makes perfect sense. You do not wake up ready to pray. You do not wake up with your heart full of joy every day. Some days maybe you do. You wake up with thoughts that are intruding. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying you have to turn that around and begin to speak to your soul. And I believe that the Christian is the person who, who learns how to take what they know about the gospel and preach it to their own soul. So that you can come to God unhindered. You take hold of those thoughts, those accusations which are holding you back from God and you tell them where they need to go. And you begin to preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself, I am acceptable to God through Christ. He loves me. He has welcomed me into his presence and he is going to hear my prayers. And as you summon your spirit in this way, you're doing as they did in the Psalms. You're starting to stir your own heart up to a place where you can really pray. Our hope, our aim is to be people who relate to God, who know Him. And I want to pray for you as we close. We're going to take communion and worship together. But my concern, my concern for us all is that it's possible for you to go on limping through the Christian life without ever really knowing how to relate to God. And while most of what I've said today has been practical in nature, do not forget that underneath it is the basic orientation and desire. I need to find a way to put God first in my life. And I want to urge you to go away and think on the things I've said and to find a way to walk with God more closely and to take advantage of what is yours. You were saved in order that you could know God. So to, not, to fail to walk in the good of that 
is, is, is a tragedy. You could live the whole of your Christian life being saved, but not walking in the knowledge of who God is as your Father. So I want to pray for you now. Why don't we just open our hands to God and come to Him and begin to ask that God will help us in this. Father, we're conscious of our our constant tendency to forget the goodness of the things that we can walk in as Christians and as children of God. I want to pray, Lord, that you will help us to find new ways, better ways, to determine, to put ourselves in a place where we can receive your grace. We thank you, Lord, that it's not because we pray that we're acceptable to you, but we're acceptable to you, which enables us to pray. And we want to take full advantage of the, the richness and the sweetness of what it means to walk with you just as Christ did, so that we, like him, can live a purpose-filled life. So that we, like him, can walk out into our days with a sense of knowing why we're here on this earth. So that we can have unbroken intimacy with you through the day, as well as in those intense moments of prayer. So that we can start to be useful to you in our obedience, in our service, in our conversations, in the way we work and offer our work to you as something to glorify you. Lord, I pray for this foundational change to happen in lives. That we would learn how to love you in a very practical way, how to relate to you more sweetly, more deeply. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.